So last night, um, we were together with our elders and their wives to have dinner together, and we played a really silly game that my wife came up with. And um, they asked me the question, what's your favorite color? I thought this should be interesting because I don't have a favorite color, and um, I've never picked a favorite color yet, so I'm still planning maybe to pick a favorite color. But everybody in the group picked that I would wear, that my favorite color would be black. I was very surprised. And then, uh, worse than that, this morning, one of our bridge kids, Ethan Bump, came up to me and said, how come you're wearing the same shirt you wore last week? (laughs) And I tried to convince him that I was wearing a sport coat last week with a button-down shirt, and I don't have any idea what I wore last week. My wife let me out of the house, so I'm okay. That's the important thing. Um, Bridge kids, you can uh, go to your classes right now. So today we come to part five. We're in a series. It's called Ten Traits. It's 10 traits of a fully devoted follower of Christ. We said our mission is to help people connect with God and develop them into fully devoted followers of Christ. By the way, we're trying to do that with whether they're preschool or all the way up to old people like myself. So that's our goal, to help people develop into fully devoted followers of Christ. We take that from the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, and we're to make disciples according to Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And as Jesus said, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded, and everything, all of God's word. And when we talk about a fully devoted follower of Christ, we're talking about people becoming uh, followers who are learning to obey everything Jesus commanded. So the past four weeks, we've talked about two different character traits of a Christ follower each week. And uh, here is our kind of review of what we've talked about. We've said fully devoted followers of Christ uh, are, first of all, uh, have a growing knowledge of the Bible and are learning to apply it daily, have a growing knowledge. Now, as we go through these, think about this. Ask yourself, on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate yourself? 0 to 10, 1 to 10, 10 being a fully devoted follower of Christ, fully mature, 0 being I'm clueless, 1 is maybe I'm on the way. So just think, this is for you, only you. Are you growing in your knowledge of the Bible? The goal is not for you to be a biblical scholar. Some of you may become biblical scholars, but there's no command that Jesus wants you to be a biblical scholar. What he wants you to do is to be growing in your knowledge and learning to apply it regularly. The second one was to practice regular spiritual disciplines. And we talked about this. What's a spiritual discipline? Well, it's a spiritual practice to help us grow as Christ followers. Practices like uh, reading the Bible, studying the Bible, that's God's Uh, It's God's word. It's spiritual food. As we take it in, we're going to grow and thrive. So it's a practice. It doesn't come naturally. It's an effort. And um, I do it not because I feel like it all the time. I do it because it's important. It's a a priority. And so I want to be disciplined in that. Um, Where do we get this concept of discipline? First Timothy chapter four, verse seven, where Paul told Timothy, train yourself 
to be godly. So that's something I have to do, train myself uh, to, to grow up spiritually. Uh, there are other spiritual disciplines include prayer. Sometimes I pray because I'm desperate, but I want to learn to pray all the time, regularly. I want to pray for things I'm thankful for. I want to pray for things I need. And when God supplied all my needs, I want to be very thankful. I want to be in touch with Him. I want to have a relationship with Him. I want to experience His presence. So I, prayer is an important one. Scripture memory, learning to hide God's Word in your heart. Um, Jesus modeled this. The Apostle Paul modeled this. It's modeled throughout Scripture. David modeled it. Being able to recall God's Word helps me battle with sin, helps me to think, it gives me clarity, many benefits to memorizing Scripture. Uh, solitude and silence. Sometimes I just need to get away from noise and busyness and slow down and focus on connecting with God. Uh, fasting sometimes uh, can be a spiritual discipline, a practice to help me in my growth. It's not commanded. It's assumed by Jesus. He said, when you fast. Uh, the third one was to commit to regular corporate worship and actively participate in small groups. And uh, we said, Jesus uh, is raising up a worshiping community. That's the church, the body of Christ. And the Father is seeking true worshipers. And God has designed a church so that we come together on a regular basis for a corporate experience where there's teaching of the word, there's prayer, uh, there's worship, thanksgiving. Then there's an opportunity to be in relationship in smaller groups. Both of those are modeled in, in the New Testament, and uh, that's where we really have a chance, uh, as God has designed, to grow in relationship with each other, to encourage one another, pray for one another, admonish one another sometimes, help each other, serve one another. Long list of things that we do in relationship that help us grow. Fourthly, to seek to deny self and submit to the Lordship of Christ. It's just the old question, is Jesus Lord? Is he the one in charge of your life? Um, next one is that a fully devoted follower of Christ cares about lost people and intentionally builds relationships to share the good news. Lost people matter to God. People who are not yet in relationship with God matter to him. They should matter to us, no matter who they are. All of us need a relationship with Jesus. Then uh, the next one was to give generously to support Jesus' church. This is about financial resources specifically. And um, as Jesus has designed it in the church, it's very clearly a part of our spiritual formation, how we become more like Christ. And then last week we talked about using your spiritual gift to serve Christ in his church. And, uh, you know, do you know what your spiritual gifts are? Are you operating with your spiritual gifts? Do you, do you use them to serve the church and um, Jesus. And one that I failed to put on here that we talked about last week is that a fully devoted follower of Christ is socially responsible to his community and to his world or to, his, to her community and her world. Social responsibility. It's about caring for people with, that are under-resourced, that have needs. So on a scale of 1 to 10, you get to check how you're doing. The question isn't, how bad are you or how good are you? The question is, is how do we help you? How do you go from where you are to another step? So if you said you were a four on one of these, how can, how can we help you get to a five? If you were a 10 on one of these, how can we help you be humble? Okay, so if you're a one, how do we help you get to two? 
So today we're going to talk about a fully devoted follower of Christ builds spiritually healthy relationships in the family, okay? Builds spiritually healthy relationships in the family. So uh, first thing I want to say is God designed the family unit as a safe and secure launching pad where children thrive. We take this from Genesis 1 and 2. We're going to look at that. Let me just remind you, every once in a while we need a reality check. I just want to remind you of the state of the family, today. In a, um, in a study done uh, in 2011, reported by Kevin Jones in uh, two different articles, and, and here's the um, summary of the research. Some of the findings from the study include cohabitation is on the rise. Cohabitation refers to a couple living together as if they're married. This is definition of the dictionary, as if they're married, but they're not married. Cohabitation is on the rise. By the time they turn 12, more than 40% of U.S. children now spend time in a cohabitating household. So 40% for kids, of all kids age 12 in the U.S. That's compared to 24% of U.S. children up to the age of 12 who will see their parents get a divorce. So there are more kids living with couples who are living together who are not married than there are kids who are going through a divorce. Their parents are going through a divorce. Next conclusion. Cohabitation is unstable for children. In the U.S., for children up to the age of 12, the breakup rate in their homes will be 170% higher if their parents-slash-partners are cohabitating. So get a parent living with somebody, not the child's parent, there's 170% higher that there's going to be a breakup. Cohabitation is unsafe for children. Compared to children in intact biological married parent homes, children in cohabitating homes are at least three times more likely to experience physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. Children living with cohabitating couples are also significantly more likely to be delinquent at school, fail school, or use drugs. The report concluded that marriage, this is interesting, marriage is an important public good with a range of economic, health, educational, and safety benefits that help all levels of government serve the common good. In contrast, the rise of cohabitating households with children is the largest unrecognized threat to the quality and stability of children's lives in today's families. Let me just uh, highlight uh, a study done, another study done, uh, in the New Oxford Review, Patrick Schneider. And here are his findings. These are conclusions. Relationships are unstable in cohabitation. One-sixth of cohabiting couples stay together for only three years. Listen to this. One in ten survive... Uh, uh, one in ten survives for five years or more. Ninety percent fail within five years is what they're saying. Okay. So think about that when you bring kids together. Uh, secondly, cohabit cohabiting women often end up with the responsibilities of marriage, 
particularly when it comes to caring for children without the legal protection. Research has also found that cohabiting women contribute more than 70% of the family's income. Can you believe that? Cohabitation, the third one, breaks, uh, excuse me, brings a greater risk of sexually transmitted diseases because cohabiting men are four times more likely to be unfaithful than husbands. Number four, poverty rates are higher among cohabitors. Those who share a time but never marry have 78% less wealth than continuously married. And the last one here, those who suffer most from cohabitation are the children. The poverty rate among children of cohabiting couples is fivefold greater than the rate of, among children in married coupled households. Children's ages 12 to 7 with cohabiting parents are six times more likely to exhibit emotional and behavioral problems and 122% more likely to be expelled from school. I'm going to read from one more, and I'm only going to read the conclusion. Uh, this is from a study by Elizabeth Marquardt from two different articles. And this is about the whole view of good divorce. Good divorce is highly uh, recognized in our culture today. Uh, but after the first national study of the inner lives of children of divorce, Marquardt concluded, we found that even young people who grew up in a so-called good divorce, one in which divorced parents get along reasonably well and stay involved in their lives, still suffered negative effects. And they go through a whole list of things that, they, that were negative about that. I'm not going to read those. Mark, and then at the end, Mark Hort summarizes the study by stating, the idea that a good divorce is good for children is popular. But we found that while an amicable good divorce is better than a bad divorce, it's inaccurate and misleading to describe the children's experience as good. So... I'm not here to hammer people over the head. Those aren't Christian facts. Those are just facts, okay? And uh, so here's what we're saying. God designed the family unit as a safe and secure launching pad where children thrive. So I just want to go back. I want to paint a big picture of what God intended. And I'm not saying it's where we are as Christians. I'm not saying this is where the church is today. I'm saying let's go look and see what God intended for us to do and to be. Um, the first passage is Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Scripture says, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. This is in the very first book in the Bible, and this is what we call the foundational passage on marriage. This is confirmed by Jesus in the New Testament. He uses this on more than one occasion, and the Apostle Paul affirms this as well. This is the foundational passage. And it's a brief description here, and the idea is that a man will leave his father and mother, so he's going to separate from his parents. Uh, they are the priority relationship is when a person grows up, they grow up in their parents' household, and then they come to a point and they make a decision to leave. And the, and the decision to leave is to join with a new person, and that's a wife. And that little phrase there, is united to his wife, that's the wedding, that's the marriage, that's the commitment, that's the decision. That's recognized in all cultures from the beginning. Marriage is not a Christian thing. It's from the beginning, and um, all cultures got it, whether they were Jewish or not, because it, there was an origination to it right here. And they will become one flesh, uh, two different people. And, um, and by the way, these are male and female. We'll see that. In it comes from Genesis chapter 1. 
and uh, they become united in a one flesh relationship. And that includes sex. It's, yes, it includes sex. It's like permission for sex, but it's way more than just sex. Well, one flesh, it's a, it's a committed relationship. It's uh, an exclusive relationship. It is not inclusive. You don't let it, uh, other people come into the bedroom. It's very exclusive, okay? And you're committed to this person for life. It's a decision. Um, that's why we do wedding vows, the promise to live with somebody, a decision, uh, for better or worse, sickness and health, till death do us part. And it was Jesus who affirmed the death do us part. Because that God intended, original, that this would be a long-term relationship. It wouldn't be experimentation. It would be a lifetime commitment so that when kids come, there would be stability and security and love and commitment. Now, I'm not here to bash anybody who has experienced divorce. I understand life is hard and difficult and things happen, and I'm not here to bash anybody. Please, I just want to go back because one of the things that we all have to figure out if it's not our kids, what do we want for our kids? Or what do we want for our grandkids? How many failures do we want our grandkids or our kids to have? Even if we've had some failure, okay? What's, let's look at the ideal. Let's hold this up. Genesis 1, and 28 is the next passage. So God created mankind in his own image. That's really key. Human beings are created in the image of God. They're different than the rest of the animal kingdom. That was very intentional on God's part. In the image of God, he created the male and female. This is the couple of Genesis 2.24, Adam and Eve, male and female. And that was God's plan from the beginning. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. So God created this first couple, brought them together in this exclusive relationship called marriage, and he blessed them and he told them to be fruitful. He's, guys, I want you to have a lot of kids. I want to multiply the image of God on earth. And here is the family to get you started. That was the plan. The image of God multiplied through a loving, safe, secure environment where the parents were there. Okay, let's, let's keep developing this. Um, Secondly, God designed marriage to be a loving and safe and secure. And let's walk through this. Look at a passage in the New Testament, Ephesians 5.21. In the marriage relationship, this is for believers in general, but it definitely applies to the married. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I just want to uh, just say it out loud. God never intended a male-dominant marriage. He never intended that. But it happened historically. Christians allowed men to dominate in unhealthy ways, okay? But God never intended that. Now we go to Ephesians 5.22. A lot of us know this one. Wives, submit, to your, submit yourselves to your own husband as to the Lord. Well, yeah, the Bible says that. And there is a submissive relationship on the part of the wife to the husband. And that's going to be very helpful in marriage if the wife is not fighting her husband at every turn, that she's attempting to get along and, and have peace and harmony in the relationship, but not just for the sake of peace and harmony. Um, Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Now, this is where we've gone off the mark here. 
God said, men, I want you to be loving and caring and sacrificial. I do not want you to be self-centered with your wife, not self-focused with your wife. I want you to be willing to lay down your lives for your wives. That would change everything, wouldn't it? In American Christianity, if we had men who loved like this, and that could be a pretty fun environment to be in. Um, but that's what God intended. I'm going to jump to 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner, as theirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Something can hinder your prayers, and it's the way you treat your wife, men. Some men don't even pray, and then if they do, they wonder why God doesn't answer. Well, I'm going to ask, how do you treat your wife? And here's what Scripture says. In the same way, be considerate. You're going to have to go out of your way, guys, to live with a woman. Because she's not like you. God made her different intentionally, and he wants you to spend your life figuring that out. So you have to invest time and energy and understanding, being a student of your mate, and treat them with respect. Everybody, God intended everybody in the family to be treated with respect, very high respect, to create an image of God with dignity, Treat them as the weaker partner. The bad rap is, does that mean she's inferior? Absolutely not. A better perspective would be she's a more delicate partner. God made her in a more delicate way. I like to say she's more sophisticated, especially emotionally, than males. And that's why she's such a good nurturer. That's why we need her in the family. So she can provide love and care. Because dads aren't always good nurturers. And so, ladies, God is on your side here. Uh, You could reduce this to say, men, if you're insensitive to your wives, God will be insensitive to you. If you're sensitive to your wives and you seek to walk with the Lord, he's going to answer your prayers. So I'm not trying to teach everything there is to know about the Christian family, but these are some big flyover at 30,000 feet ideas. Next of all, God designed the family to be a place where children are taught, mentored, and discipled. That's what God intended. Now, it didn't happen. I got taught some at home. I was taken to church. And there were a lot of good things about the family I grew up in, but I missed a ton of things that I didn't know that I was supposed to get. And my parents didn't know it either. Um, But Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 through 9, it's a foundational passage in the Old Testament. Uh, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is the command to parents, okay? Mom and dad, this is for you. Love God. This is a spiritual thing, spiritual relationship with God. And Jesus will say, this is the most important command in the Bible. If you want to just say, what, what should I do? Make, if you only do one thing, do this one, okay? And then verse 6, these commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Who? Parents. Impress them on your children. Parents, impress them. Don't force them. It's you model it for them. Show them how to love God. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. You're going to have to be intentional about instructing your kids about spiritual things. I'm not saying dump it on them or force it on them. I'm just saying put it into your life on a normal basis. Don't just talk about spiritual things in your bedroom when you're alone. Talk about it in front of your kids, too. So and when, the, when they go to bed or when you're in the car, you can talk about spiritual things. 
when you lie down or when you get up. Next slide. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. And one of the things in the Old Testament, sometimes God people got off track a little bit. And, you know, this could mean that I need to make symbols on my hands and symbols and have a symbol on my head. And uh, I could wear this. And they, and they did. The Jew, some of the Jewish people had phylacteries and they, they wrote commandments and put them in a little box and tied them up in a leather pouch and they wore them on their wrist. It was God's word right there. And they also, they did a phylactery for their head, and they put a little leather bag here, and they had the commandments inside, and they tied it around their head. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. Is that exactly what was intended? Well, I think it was more was intended in, you know, the commandments are to be a part of what we do, our hands. They're to be a part of what we think, you know, our head. They're, they're, God's word is to be uh, a part of us. And uh, then it goes on and says... Uh, Write them on the door frames of your houses. Well, they, the scripture should be lived out in, inside your homes. And, and then it says, uh, and on your gates. That's the city gates. It means your public life. Yeah, you can put them on the gates of your houses or the door frames of your houses. And they did. They put them in little metal containers called mezuzahs, and they nailed them to the door frames. That's okay. But it's about living out truth in your home. It's about living out truth in your public life. Uh, you know, for us, living out truth in our home might be living out truth with your computer. That's inside your home, okay? I'm going to jump to uh, Proverbs chapter 2. The book of Proverbs is loaded with instruction for kids, and parents are responsible for instructing their kids. Here's just an example. Proverbs is about wisdom, the art of skillful living. And uh, the writer says, My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, and by the way, in chapter 1 it says, Listen to your mother's commands too so it's not just listening to your dad it's supposed to be listening to your mom too turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding indeed if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding if you look for it as silver um, so the father is telling his son son I want you to pay attention you got to listen to what I'm teaching you this is really important Turn your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding. This is going to benefit you for life. Indeed, if you call out for insight, call out to who? God. Cry out aloud for understanding. To who? God. It's about prayer. It's about teaching your kids to reach out to God in prayer. And this is what the father is telling his son. Verse 4. And if you look for it as silver... This is important, he said. It's, it's like a valuable treasure. You search for it. You put effort into it. In fact, it's more important than valuable treasure. If you search for it as a hidden treasure, verse 5, next slide, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. And so this dad is just teaching, and he's saying there's, there's some spiritual values here that are really important, and you're not going to understand them. You're going to have to take some of them by faith. You're going to have to learn from God about this as well. There's going to be a tremendous amount of benefits. Uh, Proverbs chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, come knowledge and understanding, and kids need to learn that from their parents. He, he holds success in store for the upright. It's, it's success in God's eyes, not necessarily uh, on Wall Street's eyes. It's success in God's eyes. He is a shield to those who, whose walk is blameless. Next slide. For he guards the course of the just and he protects the way of the faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair in every good path. 
And this is the father teaching his son. Ephesians 6, verse 4, New Testament. What are we talking about? We're talking about what God has designed for families. How do kids learn? Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Fathers, you can't be self-centered and self-focused in raising your kids. You can't deal with your anger issues when you're trying to raise your kids and speak to them. Do not exasperate. You can't uh, you need, this is why we need wives. We need wives to help us know what the limits of a four-year-old kid is or what a, the limits of an eight-year-old kid is because sometimes we dads don't know and we push him too hard. And that's why the scripture says, don't exasperate them. Don't push him too hard. Instead, bring them up in training and instruction. That's a responsibility we have as parents is to, is to train. Also, God designed the family to be a place where honor and respect are learned. Where honor and respect are learned. Ephesians 6, verses 1 and 2. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Obedience is important. But this, again, this isn't uh, blind obedience. It's about, you know, God expects parents to be godly and, and to be patient and kind and loving and gentle and truthful. Uh, it's not just about you do what I said because I said it. But we do want to teach our kids to obey and then to honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise. And one of the struggles that sometimes people have is when you grow up, okay, I've learned to obey my parents, but now I'm married. Am I supposed to obey my parents? Well, no. You don't obey your parents when you're married. You're the most, you have one relationship that's most important, and that's your, that's your mate. You, you honor your parents, but you've broken that tie for obedience. But when you grow up and you're under your parents' authority, then you do have responsibility to your parents. You always have the responsibility to show respect. You can, exp you can respect your parents without doing what they tell you you should do if you're married. And uh, the last thing here under family is God designed the family to illustrate Christianity to our world. God designed family to illustrate Christianity. So this is big picture stuff here. Um, God intended that we live out Christianity 101. Because you, you get people together in family, you get husbands and wives together. Boy, that, isn't that the easiest place to get your feelings hurt and uh, to be disappointed with another person, to become angry? And that's where it's so important that we practice love and forgiveness, forgiveness and patience and kindness. Ephesians 4, 29 through 32. This is to everyone who, who are believers. This is to the church, but it's very definitely for the, for the family, the church in miniature, the family. How about your speech? Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Where are kids supposed to learn this? at home. They're going to learn it from their parents. They're not going to always want to do this, but they need to see it. They need to understand it. Um, verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of rede redemption. Our kids need to know that when we sin, when we fail, it, it grieves God deeply. It's like it can grieve a parent when 
our kids uh, mess up. We can be grieved. Well, God is grieved. God is grieved when we sin as parents. And then the next slide, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. There's a lot of anger in Christian homes these days. A lot of bitterness and sometimes rage. And how, how can we help our kids if we don't process ourselves? I mean, you may have good reason to have stuff in your life because of what you've experienced. And I'm sorry, because I know there's hard things that you've experienced, maybe the family you grew up in. But these are things we have to process and deal with so that we don't, we don't have to pass everything on to our kids. We're, we're not going to have a perfect home. Um, I didn't grow up in a perfect home. I've got stuff from my past, and I would be a better parent if my p- parents could have done the things that I'm talking about today. I would be a better, better man. And so I have stuff, and I still struggle with them, but God has revolutionized my life, transformed my life in many, many ways. Um, get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, and every form of malice. And then verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another. Where are our kids to learn this if they don't learn it from parents? It's too bad they have to learn it in college. It's good if you can. Or if they have to learn it after they get married. Or after they go through a divorce. Forgiving, that's one of the most basic concepts of Christianity. Christianity 101, learning to forgive. In marriage, you're going to forgive, and you're going to forgive, and you're going to forgive. Married, married folks, isn't that right? You're going to forgive, and you're going to forgive, and you're going to forgive. And that's what's going to make your relationship resilient if you can forgive. It takes both people, by the way, not just one. Uh, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. There are several passages here in Romans. Uh, quickly, I'll cover Romans 12.10. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. That's basic Christianity, but that's what we need in our homes. Um, Romans 12, 12 and 13. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction. Parents, we need to be patient. They need to, kids need to see us be patient. How will they learn patience when the hard stuff comes if they don't see it in us? Uh, faithful in prayer. Are we faithful in prayer? Our kids will learn by watching us. Do they see mom and dad when, when things are hard? They know mom and dad are just trusting God and patiently waiting and see God answer prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Where do kids learn that? It's by watching mom and dad. Romans twelve eighteen. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, this isn't uh, enabling. This isn't codependency. As far as it depends on me, I'm responsible to reconcile or resolve conflict when I can. As far as it depends on me, I'm responsible to make the effort to bring peace to a relationship if I can. Maybe I can't, but I do my part. I entrust it to God. It's not make peace at all costs. It's making peace, taking right steps, truthful steps, and leaving results to God. But I need to make sure that I'm not burying my head in the sand, okay? Okay, here we go. We're going to do the last one. And just like every week, this is a short one, all right? A fully devoted follower of Christ displays God-honoring character because this is really going to make a difference in your family, by the way. 
It's really going to make a difference in your family. God-honoring character is a fruit of spiritual growth. You probably already knew this. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Just think about this as a reminder. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. The fruit of the Spirit. It's talking about the Holy Spirit. And the idea is that when you place your faith in Christ and you receive the gift of salvation, God put the Holy Spirit in you. That was part of your salvation, that God would send his spirit to live inside of you. And the seed was planted, and fruit is the outgrowth of what is planted. And as a follower of Christ, learns to walk with Christ, learns to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and trust God and yield to God, then God grows us and he develops character within us. And this is his work, by the way. This is not the result of your effort. It's just about following Christ. And then the, the Holy Spirit produces you, changes you to be a more loving person. Others focused, not self-focused. Um, a more joyful person. That's not exuberant joy necessarily. It's joy on the inside. It's a rewarding experience on the inside. And I don't think it's meant to be 24-7. I just think it's experienced more uh, as you follow Christ. Uh, peace. Peace in your relationship with God, which is a removal of guilt. Uh, peace with others. You can't guarantee peaceful relationships with every person, but as far as it depends on you. Forbearance, the ability to put up with other people because other people are quirky. I don't, most people around me are quirky, I think. But um, Kindness, the ability to be kind. I'm kinder. Is, is that happening? Uh, goodness faithfulness. I'm, I'm able to be more faithful. I, I can stay the course longer and better if I follow Christ. I'm a more gentle person. Uh, I have more self-control. Self-control is a really big issue in our culture, whether it's sex or food or addictions of any kind. And yet, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is growing in this area of self-control. Uh, next, I want to say God-honoring character is to be pursued. Second Peter 1 5 through 9. For this reason, Peter says, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, that was the fruit of the Holy Spirit, to goodness, knowledge, that's going to come from Scripture, to knowledge, self-control, that's the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. Next slide. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. That's like the back door is saying it's going to affect the impact you have for Jesus. And he's saying, pursue these. These are important. These are good things. Pursue them. Um, watch out for them. You're going to, as you grow, as you take in God's word, as you pray, as you follow Christ, these are important things, and you're going to grow in them. The last section, God-honoring character, is developed by walking in the power of the Holy Spirit over time, which includes facing difficulties in life. It's kind of a mouthful. Character is developed by walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. We sometimes call it walking in the Spirit. I love the concept of walking in the Spirit. Uh, Galatians 5.16 tells us to walk in the Spirit. I love walking. Um, 
I can go back at my life, and on September 29th, 1974, I was headed in this direction. I was, uh, I was an atheist. I was far from God, and then I encountered Jesus and placed my faith in Christ, and he turned me around and headed me in a new direction, and I've been taking baby steps ever since, one step at a time, and I have the opportunity to walk in the Spirit as I'm yielded to the Holy Spirit as I want him to control me, I sort of move ahead in the Christian life. However, if I get off the course, I just sort of stop until I get back on the course. How do I get back on the course? Well, I confess my sin, agree with God if I've sinned, ask him to forgive me, experience cleansing, and then ask him to fill me and control me with the Spirit again, and I just keep walking. One step, baby steps, baby steps every day. But if you step off for six months or a year or five years, it's going to slow you down a bit. Um, Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. Not only so, this is the difficult part. This is not the fun part. Anybody here never experienced anything difficult? Okay. The thing about difficulty is some people fear like if I'm a Christian, I'm going to get more difficulty. No, you're not. Everybody has difficulty, Christians and non-Christians alike. The question is, is do you you want good to come out of your difficulty? Do you want God to be honored out of your difficulty? Everybody's going to have it. You're not going to have more just because you're following Christ. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. That wasn't just difficulty. They were suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance. That's good. Perseverance, character. Well, the character of Jesus is good. And character, hope. Well, I can hang on more if I have hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, Good things can come out of difficulties in our walk with Christ. James uh, one, two through four. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I know a lot of people hate that verse. How can I have joy and difficulty? Well, it's really maybe looking at this from the eternal side. If we really got what was happening, the good that would come out of it, we would see, oh, that's good. I want that. I like that. But to face the difficulty, oh, I don't know. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance perseverance isn't it good to know that if you walk with god and even though it's painful or difficult or really really hard that some good is going to come out of it rather than just failure and i'm depleted and i'm wiped out i'm exhausted and i feel like somebody ran over me and there's no good in it but if i walk with god a lot of good things can happen let perseverance finish its work that you may be mature God can move me through spiritual maturity, point me to spiritual maturity when I go through tough times. Mature and complete, not lacking in anything. So God wants us to grow spiritually. You know, when you raise raise your family, when you raise kids, they need to learn how to handle difficulty. Being a Christian isn't about God making me happy and taking away my problems. Being a Christian is having God walk through the problems with me, and I show that to my kids. So here's what we've talked about. A fully devoted follower of Christ builds spiritually healthy relationships in the family. 
How are you doing? A scale of one to ten. Mark yourself. How, what do you think? The second one is a fully devoted follower of Christ displays God-honoring character. How are you doing? One to ten. 